0: You are listening to the Invitation Church podcast. To learn more about Invitation Church, visit us online at Invitation605.com. You can also download our app on iTunes and Google Play by searching for Invitation605.
1: Grateful uh, to have uh, Dennis Toom um, here with us to share. This morning, uh, I was um, at First Baptist, uh, preached the 9 o'clock and the 10.30, doing the morning shift over there, is what I was doing. Uh, the pastor there uh, just had throat surgery, so this is like a job where you sort of need your larynx a little bit. So uh, he's recovering from that, and so I thought it would be really fun to have Dennis uh, and welcome him. There's a, there's a quote that I want to I read. Uh, Dennis and I go way back, um, go back to third grade, um, and I played on a basketball team called the Lowell Sonics was very intense Y back in those days, I was number 30, 53 pounds, okay, so, and uh, Dennis's son, uh, Joe, played on that team, and so sometimes he was our coach, sometimes he was our ref, and kind of goes all the way back there, and then went to college, um, after that, uh, where Dennis is uh, serving as the campus pastor at the University of Sioux Falls, uh, which he's still doing, he's been doing since the 90s. We'll just call it that. And there's a quote that I bumped into this week by Frederick Buechner um, that just really captures my experience of Dennis. And there's several people in the room who have um, bumped into him um, as well. So Frederick Beekner once wrote this, that if we are to love our neighbors... Before doing anything else, we must see our neighbors. With our imagination as well as our eyes, that is to say, like artists, we must see not just their faces, but the life behind and within their faces. Here is love that is the frame we see them in. And I think for anybody who spent time uh, around Dennis. Uh, You're sometimes maybe surprised at what you're willing to share with him uh, because you feel seen and you feel safe uh, with him, and so he's somebody that has taught me a lot about um, what it means not just to claim grace but to live in light of it, and he's been somebody that's been really helpful to me uh, on my spiritual journey uh, for a long time, yes in third grade, yes in college, and yes now. So uh, we've got a smaller crew tonight, so if you could just help me give a boisterous, Invitation Church, welcome to Dennis' tomb. That would be amazing.
2: Yeah, uh, last Sunday night I got this text about this time from Dave. and said, uh, you want to fill in? And, uh, uh, and Ellen was sitting next to me and we were watching TV. Uh, and he said, what do you think? And so she said, go for it. Uh, so I'm glad to be here. Uh, this is, I have to admit, kind of strange because 40 years ago, la- right now I was on staff uh, at Trinity Baptist and it was 40 years ago last fall that I was ordained in that big room over there and uh, so this is uh, an interesting coming of full circle. 40 years ago right now, I was thinking about that as we were singing these songs, uh, we, I experienced my first worship war in a church where uh Do we dare sing contemporary songs? Uh, And if so, what kind? And when? Because uh, you can't expect to do that on Sunday morning. You might be able to get by with it Sunday night, but not Sunday morning. Because back in those days, remember, a good church, you had Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And if you didn't go to all three, you weren't really in the groove, right? And so uh, how much has changed over the years? And the songs we sing, the way we meet. This part of the building wasn't even here. I remember there was a fundraiser while I was... Uh, working here to buy this, lo- this ground from the people next door here and then seeing these things over the years. And now to realize, four congregations call this place home, uh, how beautiful is that? It's unthinkable back in the day. Uh, so much has changed over the decades and some things remain the same. You know, the gospel that we preach, we may preach it in a different style, but that's Jesus still comes through. Um, I have a couple recommendations for you. One is you need to go to the Jesus Revolution movie. Uh, If you haven't yet, how many of you have been able to go to it? Uh, If it's still in the theaters, go to it. It's a bit of going back into the past 50 years ago, over 50 years ago, as contemporary, a movement created music. Uh, The Jesus movement out of California swept the nation, and by 50 years ago right now, it was even in South Dakota. Uh, And so me, uh, it's very much part of my story as a, Confused, uh, completely lost soul, wandering around USD, uh, going everywhere except the class, and and trying to figure out life, and suddenly Jesus ambushed me, and uh, suddenly had a new direction in my life. And out of that Jesus movement came music, and uh, the whole thing about ex-rockers, Larry Norman, uh, many others that that end up becoming the pioneers in contemporary Christian music, which we're now seeing today. Today now it's interesting because I watched this as a campus pastor, how once upon a time, 50 years ago, a movement created music. Now music is creating a movement, and so now we see music taking on a different role in college life and, and what that means to people. and so um, I'm, it's kind of neat to be old. Uh, I stood at that east door uh, in January 7th of 1983. Uh, thinking to myself, on my 30th birthday, what do I want to be when I grow up, and now I just had my 70th birthday, and I'm still asking that same question, uh, and an interesting thing is that's kind of life, isn't it? You go through these different stages, and I look out on my friends here, and you know, and I, so many of you that I have a story with, uh, and it's, it's interesting to look back and say, well, what now? What now? So I recommended a movie to you, and I'm going to recommend a book to you because it Pertains to what we're talking about. Because Dave said, "What I said today, what should I talk about? He said, well, let's talk about grace. And honestly, if I were to drop dead tomorrow, this would be the one thing I want to, this would be my last sermon I'd want to give. Not that I'm planning on it, but you never know. Especially when you get to be 70. Uh, that, that this is what I want to remember. Be remembered for is the message of grace. Dave mentioned uh, Frederick Buechner. A beautiful book that, about grace and about finding God in the brokenness of life. Is Frederick Buechner's The Sacred Journey. If you can get your hands on it, read it. A short memoir about how he found Christ and how, he, like he says in this book, out of the bedrock hardness of things, from the, out of the fissures of this broken world, oozes forth this crazy holy grace that sneaks up on us and touches us and touches our lives. And that's what I want to talk to you today about is grace. It's fascinating when you look in the Bible about grace you know, uh, as uh, New Testament people, we think about a lot, don't we? And yet it's fascinating because the Greek word doesn't really show up. Uh, if you look at that next slide here, uh, it really doesn't show up much in the New Testament until you get to the book of Acts. So all of a sudden, in, uh, there's a couple of references earlier, but in Acts 15, and since Dave's doing a series on that, I'm going to do a little plan ahead for this one. Uh, at Acts 15, the church, about 15 years old at this time, has to decide how they're going to deal with a changing world. That uh, suddenly Jesus is, is, is coming into people's lives in extraordinary ways. And, and the old ways of doing things are going to change because what had been a very Jewish church now became a very non-Jewish church. And so the church has this council in Acts 15 to figure out what they're going to do with these, these new Christians who don't know Moses from Abraham from whatever. And so they this definitive statement comes out, and the apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter, and there had been much debate. I love, you know, remember in, in scrolls, you only have about 30 feet, so you've got to get your words there very carefully and plan ahead, and so Luke uh, uh, says, much debate, as in, they're in each other's faces. And Peter stood up and said to them, my brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the, of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor they were able to bear? In other words, what are we going to do with all these rules? What are we going to do with this? Well, this is the way we've always done it. What are we going to do with, with business as usual versus what God is doing in a new way? And then he drops this bomb. It's only about the 10th time in the New Testament thus far because the word only comes up in Luke and John in passing in reference, not quoted by, used by Jesus, this Greek word for grace. And then just a couple times in Acts, this is about the 8th time in the New Testament thus far the word is mentioned. On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. Now, if you have your Bible and you look, you'll notice that you're about a third of the way through the New Testament at this point, and you've only seen the word grace pop up eight times, but in the remaining New Testament, the word grace will show up over 120 times. Suddenly, the early church caught wind of something and thought through something that they hadn't had to do up till that point, and suddenly grace becomes the new word. You know, it's so interesting, isn't it? We get locked in old ways of thinking. Well, this is the way it's always been. Well, the way it had always been in the Old Testament, yeah, they talked about chesed, Hebrew word for mercy, loving kindness in the Old Testament. But suddenly now, something new hit, and the church starts talking about grace in a very different and very radical way. And so, what is grace? I thought of it as a way to get off the hook. If you get saved by grace, it must mean that you get your fire insurance, you get to go to heaven. And I never really thought about it, and then I started thinking about it, and started coming up with different ways of thinking about grace. Like, of course, uh, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. That makes sense. The gift of grace is a wonderful and beautiful thought. That's always explained to me once. Grace is, uh, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Uh, Grace is getting what you don't deserve, you know, but that's really kind of not true. But it's, it's the idea of a gift, and that's a pretty good way of thinking about grace. Um, Actually, if you look at grace in the biblical concept, it's more like grace, God's reaching after creaturely error in the way we go waywardly and God comes after us. This is fascinating to think about because I always thought of grace as God benevolently looking on, looking down and saying, okay, I'll cut you some slack. But no, what we have in grace is a God who comes after us, especially after our error especially after we, we, I used to kind of think it was, well, grace gets you off the hook, but then you better step up. And if you'd done a content analysis of the sermons I used to preach over in that little room over there, you'd find it high on commitment and probably low on grace. It was, we better step up, we better perform, because it's all about commitment, and we got to get those, you know, make those commitments, and, well, really? And then I went through a lot of broken things in life. And you learn by your mistakes. In fact, sometimes the greatest gifts in our lives are the hardship and the pain of life, right? Because they become the doorway to grace. And so I found that grace is really God's redemptive activity concerning everything, everything. Even our sin, even though it's not God's idea, are the very things that sometimes God uses the most profoundly in our lives. We make terrible mistakes. Terrible things happen to us. Things that are not God's will. I hate that same statement, you know, everything happens for a reason. Sometimes the simple reason is somebody screwed up. Uh, and, and and there are you know and 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 everything happens for you know as if God is doling it all out. God won't give you more than he can handle. No, you know a lot of stuff God isn't giving us. He may be permitting it, but yet even in those awful things, God's redemptive activity concerning everything. Today I had a phone call with my sister who's in a nursing home at age seventy-four, with MS and in a wheelchair and suffering profoundly. Don't tell me God said between Dennis and my sister Rita. Well, Dennis is weak. I'll just let him have a normal life. But Rita's strong, so I'll give her MS. Now, that's baloney. Uh, But God permits, and I can't understand why some people get this and why some people have that, but to put it all on God makes God almost a cosmic sadist. No, it's... it's, And yet, in everything, God is a grace. God's grace is at work. And so it's also God's resources and creative energy, even in the brokenness of life. Even, uh, you know, one of the great things that happened to me... The greatest turning point in my life is after I left here and I went to work with chronically mentally ill people while I was working on a doctorate that I never finished because another child was born and that's fine. I'd rather have that child than a doctorate. And, and then I ended up uh, working as chaplain at the penitentiary, strange chain of events. And as a chaplain at the penitentiary, suddenly uh, seeing God's resources and creative energy God's redemptive and caring embrace for broken people. And it was working at the penitentiary from 1987 until 1991 that I really came to understand, to at least catch a glimpse of what grace is. Because I found many inmates telling me that although their life had been awful and had some terrible hardships coming to the pen, was the best thing that ever happened to them? And so I realized grace is really God's response after crappy events. Uh, and that to me is where I hang on to with grace. This idea that God is, uh, is doing things in our lives, that God is, is, is uh, uh, vulnerable and coming to us, that God takes us in this bedrock hardness of things and comes to us in grace is a beautiful concept. In fact, that's why I often say, you know, uh, uh, you know Lent especially is about the, the vulnerability of God where God comes to us and we see that grace in Lent are really, rather than sinners in the hands of an angry God, which we sometimes hear of a famous colonial sermon by Jonathan Edwards, really Lent is more of God in the hands of angry sinners. And God comes to us in a self-emptying way. After all, Philippians 2 says Jesus uh, emptied himself. Philippians 2 said, took the form of a servant and being found in human likeness, he, empt- he, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Grace is the emptying of God, the servanthood of God on our behalf. If you've ever been to the campus at the University of Sioux Falls, we have a statue there. It's not great art, but it's a great uh, reminder of, of who God is. It's Jesus washing Peter's feet. And at the Divine Servant statue, we see a servant God kneeling before a really screwed up disciple that he's had to spend a lot of time with, and he still will have to spend a lot of time with, restoring him and getting him finally on track But talk about a powerful symbol of grace. It's Jesus, God incarnate, fully human, fully man, sitting, kneeling at the feet of a goofball named Peter and washing his feet. That's the servant nature of grace. That's God coming to us to redeem, to to take a a broken world. And that's why Frederick Buechner said, a crucial eccentricity of the Christian faith is the assertion that people are saved by Grace. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to do. The grace of God means something like, here's your life. You might never have been, but you are because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. Here's the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Nothing can ever separate us. It's for you I created this universe. I love you. There's only one catch. Like any other gift, the gift of grace can be yours only if you'll reach out and take it. That's the fascinating thing about grace. And that's why while Jesus didn't actually talk, use the word grace, it's in everything Jesus does. And so the text that I chose for the day is my favorite text of all the Bible. And growing up on a farm, it just makes so much sense to me. And it's from Luke chapter 15. And um, while we should have the text up here, You can follow along. You're going to have a little bit of an alternative translation here. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes losers and even eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. Which one of you, having several dogs and losing one of them, does not leave them home and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he puts a leash on him and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my lost puppy. So I tell you, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having lost her car keys, if she loses one of them, does not light her phone and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she texts her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the phone that was lost. Just so I tell you, there is Join the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You know how good it feels to find your phone, find your keys, find that lost dog. Oh, you know, the dog wanders off and you just I'm going to kill him. And you get him and you just immediately just embrace that little puppy of yours. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, I'm tired. Uh, I would just soon you die now so I can get my inheritance. So give me the share of wealth that belongs to me. So he divided his assets between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had, bought a Harley, and traveled to the Sturgis bike rally. And there he squandered his wealth between Sturgis and Bit Deadwood. And when he had spent everything, a severe recession took place throughout the region, and it began to be in need, so he went and hired himself out to reptile gardens, who sent him into the fields to feed the iguanas. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the stale veggies that the reptiles were eating, and no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he hitched Tyke home and went to the father's farm and while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion and ran out and put his arms around him and kissed him. And this being a German culture was enough to make anybody freak out because we don't do that, but he did it. Then the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And his father said, Shut up, and told his hired hand, Quickly, bring out the credit card and go into town and dress this kid, and then call Famous Dave's Catering and hire GJ Safe Seaf style in it, uh, for entertainment, and let's celebrate. And for this son of mine was dead and is alive again, It's lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son had been in the field and he drove the tractor back in the home place and he heard music and dancing and he called to one of the hired hands and asked what was going on. And the hired hand said, your brother's come and your father's thrown a party because he was back safe and sound. The elder son became angry and sat in the tractor shed and just pouted. And his father came out, searched for him and began to plead with him. But he answered him, listen you old fool. For all these years, I've been working like a slave for you, and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you have never even given me a Dairy Queen gift card that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back and has devoured your assets with hookers and drugs, you celebrate him. And the father said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. You can take whatever you want and party any time you want, and you're just too uptight so joyless and such a prig that you never bother but we have had to celebrate rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and was found. Sometimes the only way you can really appreciate the goodness of the story is to have come to that point when you're so broken and so lost and so so at the end of yourself and somehow in some way grace comes your way. It happens in all our lives. We've all had those moments, haven't we, where somehow grace kind of sneaks in And of course, the interesting thing in the context of this, we have a student uh, at USF now who's a convert from Islam and he grew up in Iraq. And he grew up in a true honor culture. And in the intro to the Bible, one day we were talking about this parable. He said, where I grew up, in my culture, any sign of weakness, any sign of mercy by a father was a sign that could get you in trouble with your neighbors. And in fact, in my culture, both of these sons should have been killed. Because they had dishonored and embarrassed their father to such an extent that in an honor culture, much of which, like the Bible was written, Jesus' story is so scandalous that we in our more laid-back culture kind of miss how radical this concept of grace really is. We have a God who comes out to the tool shed and looks for us. We have a God who runs to us in our brokenness and says, I'll pick you up where you're at and we'll go from there. And we have a concept of grace in our faith that I think is so quickly lost because somehow the church, I just had a conversation just earlier this afternoon about a woman my age, old like me, who said, I have friends that no longer want to identify as Christians anymore because we're seeing, because of this hateful rhetoric that has worked its way into so many churches. And she said, my friends... Don't even want to identify as Christians because, to add from that, they see, the world as seeing a graceless Christianity. Now, costly grace, of course, means that there are times when Jesus calls us. To, and, of course, at Lent, we take up our cross and we follow him. And, yes, that may cost us a lot. But if we forget about what grace truly is, if we forget fundamentally it is about a God who comes to us in our brokenness that says, you don't have to earn my love I'm pouring it out on you, you don't have to, you aren't going, I'm not going to love you more when you perform spectacularly, but I am going to work with you and redeem the situation and work in the worst of situations. If we don't put grace at the forefront, we fail to understand the gospel. We We fail to understand Jesus. We fail to understand that grace is not just something that God does, it is the very nature of God. As the Eastern Orthodox Church talks about grace, they talk about it as as an uncreated dimension of the very nature of God. Grace is, if I may give you five things, and then we'll be done. Grace is, first of all, subversive. It undercuts the whole meritocracy of this world. It undercuts our way of saying, I have to earn my way to this. It, 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 It takes the whole Beatitudes that we see in the Sermon on the Mount and gives us a way of doing discipleship. Yes, the Sermon on the Mount calls us to a high standard, but it begins with that sentence. Blessed are the spiritually impoverished, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are they who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the people who think upside down to the way of this world, because that is the way grace works. It's subversive. It undercuts everything. And if it's not at the forefront of your theology of this loving God, then this means nothing tonight that you will do. Grace is also, we have to appreciate the humility of grace. Grace tells us God puts things before God's very dignity and honor. Jesus was stripped naked, hung to a cross. We don't understand how humiliating it was for our Lord to be hung naked on a cross, his bodily function just cutting loose, In a a modesty culture, an honor culture, crucifixion was designed to not just torture you to death, but to humiliate you to death, and the very nature of grace is one of humility. We worship a sovereign, loving, wonderful, humble God, which leads us to the paradox of grace. Grace is a gift. Grace is also something, a gift that requires some assembly. Uh, We have to cooperate with grace. We have to respond in a way in which, as Beekner says, we have to receive that gift. And even that comes with the help from God that helps us to unwrap it. But it is nevertheless a gift, and it's a paradox because while it is God's grace given to us, it is God's goodness given to us, it is also our need to assemble it and see how it's going to unfl- unpack itself in our life. It is the very divinity of grace that we look at because God is grace. It says, as, as John says, the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That when we want to um, say the word God, and again, we're very flippant with that word, aren't we? We are talking of grace. We are talking about a God who loves you just as you are, and loves you so much that he wants to take you to a new level. But if you can't and if you don't function well, he's not going to say, well, I'm done with you. Because grace is the very nature of God and our God is a very tenacious God. A God who pursues. A God who clings. A God who embraces you in the Holy Spirit. And so we see the ubiquity of grace. I love that word ubiquity. Ubiquitous. It's a word we don't get to use enough. Ubiquity. Oh, I love it. it comes from the Latin for everywhere. The ubiquity of grace means that grace is everywhere. It means that you, even in the darkest and the most horrific moments of our own lives, of this world, where is grace? This universe is a tragic disaster if there is no grace. And if there is this grace, there is grace, then everything matters, even for the 50,000 people who were just, whose lives were, just, who were killed in the earthquakes in Syria, Grace was there. Where was God on Super Bowl Sunday while we're all having our pageantry and our excess and our overindulgence? The heart of God was with the people in Syria and their brokenness and their despair. And that's very subversive because it has all kinds of implications, I know. And you have to wrestle with that yourself, but the ubiquity of grace means it's everywhere. You can't run from it. No one can flee from God's presence. Paul says that, that uh, neither de- height nor depth, neither Death nor life, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's grace. It's ubiquitous. And so we need to kind of rethink what that means, don't we? Maybe we need to rethink the song Ubiquitous Grace. How sweet the sound that saves a wretch like us. That beautiful picture of a grace that we cannot let go of. That's what we celebrate when we come to this table. It's not a performance that we do. You don't become good enough to come to the Lord's table. You empty yourself of your pride just as God emptied himself of his dignity to make this table possible. And that's grace. It's not just a cliche. It's not just a song. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. May God help us to see that out of the bedrock hardness of life, God still has one more grace card to play. Amen.
1: Say thank you to Dennis, please. Yeah. Let's let's pray together as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Jesus, we uh, thank you so much uh, for the grace that you have shown again and again and again. God, thank you for uh, the gift of growing our roots more deeply into the truth of who you are and who we are. God, we uh, thank you for Dennis and for his life and for uh, the testimony um, of a life lived by and in and through grace and we're grateful for his presence here tonight and his hospitality to speak this uh, powerful word of grace over us we receive it in jesus name Uh, amen
0: Thank you so much for joining us on the Invitation Church podcast. I want to encourage you to take the message that you just heard and receive every part of it. Every promise from God, every declaration of his great love for you, every word of hope, every reminder that you have been made for more. Allow what you've heard to take root in your soul to allow Jesus to do the deep work that only he can do. I also want to encourage you to be part of what we are doing here at Invitation as we invite people to live the way of Jesus. Go to the app and become a regular giver, an investor in the story that God is writing in this place. Also, if you found the message meaningful, we'd love to have you share it with someone else as you partner with us in carrying the message beyond the walls of the church. I want to thank you for being here with us. Grace and peace.